Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ron Ray here, as always. And today I have on a guest who we've had on, I think, well, I was trying to think when the last time we had you on. When was the last time we had you on, Marty? <laughs> Time's flying. I imagine it was like this time last year. Or... It's been that long? so or maybe maybe like in the summer i forget exactly when okay. yeah it's been, it's been it's been uh it's been a few it's been a few days but um so let's reintroduce reintroduce yourself to the audience because you've got a fantastic newsletter which i'll link to um you have a podcast that jack dorsey apparently endorses we've got to talk about that at some point <laughs> You're all over the place maybe give a 30 second bio because i don't want to leave anything out yeah so marty bent uh the newsletter is marty's bent it's a uh, uh, week daily newsletter excuse me five days a week uh where i highlight the signal in the bitcoin space according to me what i found interesting what i what i liked uh, and then i have the podcast tales from the crypt which is an interview series and then we have a weekly news show with my co-host matt odell called rabbit hole recap uh, and then yeah i'm the, also the the director of business development at great american mining where we go and use gas that would otherwise be flared or stranded as an energy source to, to mine bitcoin okay so this podcast, we'll be talking about crypto and all kinds of stuff. Um, the commies will get mad if you don't say this is not financial advice. And so we're going to say this is not financial advice. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Do your own research, blah, 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 blah. You know, disclaimers. I hate the commies, but I got to get that out there just so that they don't get mad. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the, the, the we'll, we'll, we'll see this one up easy for you. When will Dogecoin hit a buck? Because I really need to hit a buck. Just $1. I don't know if Dogecoin will ever hit a buck. <laughs> So let's unpack that for a second for people who don't know what Dogecoin is. And this is going to get into the larger crypto um, discussion because Dogecoin is kind of a, it's, well, okay, I'll let you, you you're the expert here, so I'll let you unpack it. But it, <laughs> on some level, I can't tell if the crypto, the serious crypto people like the Dogecoin or if they like mocking people who like the Dogecoin. So uh, maybe unpack what it is and then kind of your take on it and, and why it, you know, right now it's traded at what, five cents, something like that. Um, you know, and so why it's so, why the price is so low and how that gives folks like Elon Musk or whomever a potential to make a lot of money on it. Yeah. So I would go with the latter Dogecoin is a cryptocurrency that was launched by a communist as a joke, as a meme coin. Uh, and uh, it, 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 Bitcoiners, so I, I like to focus on Bitcoin. I think Dogecoin, all the other altcoins, Ethereum are all noise. I think uh, they're eventually their value is going to get sucked into Bitcoin because Bitcoin's networks affect and distributed decentralized nature so much stronger than all of these cryptocurrencies dogecoin being one of them so to pick on dogecoin particularly uh it has uh, infinite inflation so every block that's produced dogecoin is producing more block it doesn't have a cap supply so it's it's going to be inflated into infinity so it will never reach a dollar because the supply is going to be increasing uh substantially uh, and consistently over time so as more people pour into it it doesn't matter how much value they pour into it. More more units of Doge are going to be produced, which makes it considerably hard to to reach a, a dollar price point. Uh, and, and Dogecoin is, uh, along with Ripple, which is another one that people uh, who are uneducated about about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency seem to like. It, it really plays to what we call in the space unit bias, where they see Dogecoin trading at five cents, they see Bitcoin at fifty six thousand dollars, and they say, oh. 
uh, Dogecoin like uh, is five cents. Bitcoin's fifty six thousand dollars. Like Bitcoin's way too expensive, so I'm gonna try and buy this this coin that's that's cheaper and in, in hopes that'll be the next Bitcoin. But that is a poor way to to approach this space. Bitcoin at fifty six thousand is extremely cheap, and Dogecoin is extremely cheap to attack. Uh, alternatively, like so, nobody's running Dogecoin nodes. There's very few people keeping the the status of that ledger and uh, verifying actually how many Doge exists, who owns what Doge. Um, and so if, if anybody wanted to attack Dogecoin with proof of work mining, it'd be pretty trivial compared to Bitcoin, which would be a, a considerable undertaking. And so Doge uh, is nothing more than a meme coin. I mean, it's funny to see people make the memes around the Doge dog, but you know, for your listeners, like I would not advise uh speculating with doge the, the the advice i would give is simply stacking sats and sats are the smallest unit of uh a bitcoin there's 100 million satoshis or sats in one bitcoin and one sat is actually significantly cheaper than than one dogecoin so you should be stacking sats instead of doge uh, and, and so yeah doge it's got infinite inflation it's not secure uh, and uh, it's nothing more than a meme coin, and it plays to people's unit bias again. Yeah, well, then, so you've got the Doge on one end, and you've got the Bitcoin on the other end, and you have someone like Elon who seems to be, okay, he's, in my, my perspective, trying to manipulate the market on some level. Doge is a lot easier for him to manipulate because um, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming here the Bitcoin, um, but so from that perspective, you from the outsider who's not kind of the expert, um, what do you think someone like Elon is doing when he talks about Doge and then Tesla goes and buys with 1.5 billion in Bitcoin? Um, what is he doing? Because uh, he even talks about his own stock. And so is, is he trying to play the market? Is he just toying? Is he just trolling everyone? How do you read that? Because he had, it, it seemed like he had an effect on Doge and on Bitcoin, the more there uh, in your newsletter, we'll talk about kind of the, the institutional money, the more that kind of gets steamed, it feels like the market responds to that. So how, how do you evaluate these signals we get from, the, the billionaire influencer types. I think he's just trolling. I don't think it's anything more than that. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's simply like what I think. And who knows? Like, and that's the other thing about this. Like, you shouldn't base your your investment <laughs> decisions off of Elon Musk tweeting. Though people do, and they have, as as you said, the price of Doge pumped a bit after he tweeted about it because people thought he was taking it seriously. But um, I think if you understand elon his personality um in in the way he approaches things in a playful manner it's nothing more than than a troll um yeah so right so that that i think is you know for people trying to understand the crypto as you say from your perspective you should take bitcoin out uh and i haven't looked at it this morning is it 55 i think 56 that am i right about that I want to say I saw a headline, or is it still? But let's see. Here. Fifty-six to fifty, right now. Okay, so fifty-six. Um, and so they're looking at, that and, and and they see, okay, well, Bitcoin, um, Elon is not separating these out, or people aren't separating these out. Or if you go to crypto channel, they're not separating these out. Something like yourself says, no, we should make it. We should draw a clear line in the sand. You kind of um, touched on some things, but maybe unpack that why there is, from your perspective, a clear line in the sand for Bitcoin, and why Ethereum, maybe one of the bigger names out there. Um, is, is obviously Doge is kind of on the meme side, but but Ethereum or um, I'm trying to think of one other, um, you know, Bitcoin Cash or, or something like that. But why Bitcoin is so much different in your perspective will outlast uh, these other coins. 
Yeah, so plainly we have, for the first time in quite a while, a, a competition, a free market competition for monetary goods, which hasn't existed in decades, potentially centuries. Um, if you consider the gold standard was pretty bastardized by centralization pretty early on. Uh, and so once you have a free market competition for monetary goods and you're, you're not forced to use fiat currencies like the dollar, the yen, the euro, uh, the yuan, uh, what you'll find is the free market tends to coalesce on the best monetary good. And Bitcoin is the best monetary good, whether it's compared to the fiat currencies on the market or uh, its competitors in the cryptocurrency space. And it is because it is truly scarce. There's only 21 million that will ever be created. And it is nearly impossible to change that. Uh, the, the amount of computing power, power dedicated to securing the network is far exceeds by orders of magnitude anything uh, that is securing any of the, of the altcoins in the space. Uh, it has a founder that nobody knows. And people like to point at this as, as a, a negative of Bitcoin, but it's actually a positive because there's nobody that can be dragged in front of Congress, a figurehead, and, and yelled at. So we saw when Facebook tried to launch their Libra currency, Mark Zuckerberg and, and David Marcus were immediately pulled in front of the Senate and told, you can't do this. And so Bitcoin is, has a scarce digital token attached to its network and a, a sound monetary policy that nothing else can compete with, uh, whether it be a fiat currency or an alternative cryptocurrency. The amount of computing power and network effect dedicated to the network are such that it's unlikely, at least in my mind, for anything to catch up to it in the cryptocurrency space. Um, and, and you have this, this sort of immaculate conception uh, of of this scarce digital good that 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 gives a purity, if you will, like all these other altcoins, Ethereum has Vitalik, uh, Buterin. They did a pre mine, um, so they they basically sold a bunch of tokens to insiders and uh, individuals in the public before actually launching their network. So if they launched their network and they distributed seventy million coins, block one to to the founders and and the investors in the project. Whereas Bitcoin. Is more pure in the sense that that it has a proof of work mechanism. It started with zero Bitcoin uh, in the beginning and added 50 Bitcoin per block uh, to, or distributed 50 Bitcoin per block to uh, the market as more and more people joined, and, and so that was more of a natural occurrence, and that and that gives more validity to Bitcoin's um, uh, conception, if you will. And then like so, people are like, oh, Bitcoin's the the MySpace or the cryptocurrency space, like it is slow, dumb, and and inefficient, and they they don't realize that's actually what gives Bitcoin its value. The fact that it's slow, um, it, it acts as a settlement layer by by only settling uh, a few thousand transactions per block, um, and that it's extremely distributed. Give it its give it its value. Like it, it makes it so uh, the the amount of data on the chain is such that an individual running hardware that they have at their house, like a computer, a laptop, a Raspberry Pi, can download the state of the ledger and verify it for themselves, which is imperative if you want to have a, a distributed network into the future. Like This only works if it's distributed, and it's only distributed if people can download the state of the blockchain on uh, hardware at their own homes. Ethereum, for example, is already multiple terabytes of data, whereas Bitcoin is only 350 gigs right now. Um, and so Ethereum it objectively has failed. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if many people 
who don't really pay close attention to the space know this, but Ethereum is trans has to create a whole new blockchain um, because their their first uh, iteration of Ethereum is so bloated that it doesn't scale, and so they're creating a whole new blockchain in parallel that they're hoping everybody will transition to at some unknown time in the future. Uh, and so, for many reasons, uh, it I, I think Bitcoin's by by far going to win out the competition, uh, the free market competition for monetary good in the digital age versus fiat currencies and uh, other cryptocurrencies. So the U.S., the number one export for the U.S. is, do you know the answer? I just learned this about a month ago. The number one export for the U.S., uh, United States of America is $100 bills. It's, uh, or it usually is, it's up there. And so um, it's one of those little things you learn, you kind of I like that because people say, oh, they'll, you know, they'll go to some other commodity, but it's like, no, it's, it's, it's Benjamin's. How, and I, I, I'm not asking for like, give me the step-by-step, but Bitcoin right now, from, from my perspective and the uneducated perspective, so this is what you're here for, is attached to the U.S. dollar. So the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. I am not a, I'm not a fan of the fiat currency system, so it's not kind of defending it. It just seems to be the reality. How does Bitcoin have to separate itself from the reserve currency um, it, I don't think it can be the reserve currency because of some of the things that you mentioned about it slow and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know, like, but that seems to be a question that, that I've, I've, I, I'm, I'm sure you have an answer for, but I, I've, I've wondered and when it's talked about, I don't know how do we get to the step to where it can replace a reserve currency like the U.S. dollar. Slowly but surely, it's not going to replace the dollar overnight. Like uh, that's what people like to point at Bitcoin and be like, oh, it's volatile. Uh, it's slow at the protocol level. It's not conducive for buying coffee at the protocol level mm. um, uh, as a medium of exchange. And and so they point to those factors and say, oh, it failed. Well, it's like, do you really expect a nation digital currency to go from zero to out of the box and be this all-encompassing encompassing world reserve currency within the span of 12 years? No, it's going to take time. It's happening slowly, but surely... And it'll be a process, right? Like as Bitcoin monetizes over time, it's going to, it's going like people are going to realize like, hey, if this does have truly have the potential to become a global reserve currency in the digital age, it's going to go through a monetization process. And so the number one use case for Bitcoin's uh, early life is going to be a store value. People are going to buy it as a treasury asset, like a lot of these corporations are doing it for at the corporate level or at the personal level. And you, you, I use it as a savings account personally. Um, and they're going to hold on to it knowing that the utility that the network provides is going to drive more value and users into the network. And so what you'll find is predominantly in the beginning of Bitcoin's life, which I expect to extend into the future for centuries from now, uh, a lot of people are going to hold it as a store of value and expect it to accumulate value. Now, once enough people are doing that and you have a critical mass of, of value that is accrued into the network, then you have the price volatility sort of level off and, and, it, and it becomes more suitable as a medium of exchange. And the way Bitcoin scales, again, going back to the point I made earlier, where if this is going to be distributed in the future, we need to make sure that the amount of data at the protocol level uh, is is limited so that individuals can download the state of the, the blockchain to verify uh, when they receive and send transactions, uh, the protocol layer will be uh, used as a settlement layer predominantly, where yes, it only does three to 5,000 transactions a block, but those transactions will represent 
multiple payments, uh, multiple settlement payments between large players over time. And so Bitcoin at the protocol layer will be used for, for large purchases and large settlements between businesses, individuals buying houses, government settling debts across borders, yada, yada, yada. And then the medium of exchange, like you said, how, how could it ever be a US dollar if it's slowed down? That's going to be pushed up to second layers and third layers. And so there's a second layer solution being worked on now that I use called the Lightning Network and allows you to basically lock Bitcoin up in what are called payment channels. And once your Bitcoin's locked in this payment channel, you're able to use Bitcoin uh, like a medium of exchange. So for example, I, I have a, a tool on my website, tftc.io. If you go to tftc.io and hit the dime bag uh, tab, uh, <laughs> you can send me 10 cents. You can send me 10 cents worth of Bitcoin using the Lightning Network instantly and, and essentially free. And so Bitcoin does enable this medium of exchange use case for fast and cheap payments. It's just going to be pushed to second and third layers over time as we scale. Um, and in terms of the Bitcoin being priced in US dollars, that's certainly true. Bitcoin's priced in US dollars. A lot of well, it's also priced in yen and yuan and renminbi and yeah. other currencies, euros around the world. It's not pegged to the US dollar at all. So there's like a, a, a de-alienation you need to make there. Like, yes, people price Bitcoin in US dollars because that is the, the unit of account that they're used to. Mm -hmm. But there is no an inherent connection to the US dollar system that Bitcoin has. Like, for example, there's freelancers in third world countries that work for Bitcoin. And they never touch in the fiat currencies. They'll, they'll do some coding. They'll make a website. They'll get paid in Bitcoin. And yes, it has a U.S. dollar at the at the time that it's exchanged, but for those particular individuals, there's no interaction with the U.S. dollar reserve system. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with the distinction there. It's just that um, whether it wants to be attached to the dollar, the dollar wants it to be attached to it for, for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, again, we have this free competition for monetary goods now. Like, it doesn't matter what the dollar wants to do. Uh, it's, it's, it has to compete and it can compete. And that's, that's the thing. That's the, 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 the hard facts is that in the, the US dollar reserve system due to the amount of debt that has been accrued and how, how much the monetary base has been expanded by in recent history, like it, it, the dollar can't compete because the only way it can compete is by tightening, raising interest rates and, and trying to reduce the overall units of monetary units of dollars in the system and the system would collapse if they tried to do that. The, the, the amount of interest owed on the debt we've accrued is such that you can, you have to keep interest rates low. So the, the dollar actually is handcuffed due to poor monetary policy over time. Uh, and it can't compete with Bitcoin. And that's what more and more people are starting to realize people like Elon Musk, people like Michael Saylor, people like Ross Stevens at, at Stonebridge Capital and, and NY dig, uh, athletes like Russell Okung, uh, more and more people are starting to, to come to realize that the dollar is really just consistently losing value and Bitcoin is consistently sucking value in because they have completely opposite monetary policies. Yeah, I think, you know, I talk about China um, a lot. And one of the things that's frustrating to me is U.S. policy with China. It's like, you know, if you really wanted to, and I, I'm always going to say this because people there's, there's some hawkish people out there, and I'm not one of them. Um, if you really want to, to crush China in this in the in the financial system, just have relatively decent monetary policy. Like, because yeah, you know, we talk about them devaluing our currency. Uh, have you looked at our own Fed balance sheet? Like, if we just had decent decent monetary policy, 
<laughs> it would put so much more pressure on China, uh, but we, well, we don't. So it's it's a well, we don't. And, we, and again, I think the important po- point to understand here for your audience is that we don't have it because we can't have it. Because if we did have it, it would implode the the debt system. And so the the Federal Reserve and the Treasury have two options. They they have to default on the on the debt. Like that's what they have to do. So you either do that overtly. Where you say, "Hey, we're not—we can't pay back the debt. We're not going to do it," which is politically untenable. Or you inflate away the debt by printing money into oblivion. And so that's the path that they're I, going down. I disagree with you there, and here's why. I, I, um, okay, let me rephrase. I think it is politically untenable in the way that me and you would think about it. However, the only reason they're allowed to do the things that they do now is because everyone agrees to play the game the way that they're playing it. And so when you say we're not going to pay the debt. What happens if everyone goes, okay, cool, and we're not going to pay our debt either? So uh, people are like, oh, well, it wouldn't work. It's like, well, all, but theoretically, the way that we're doing it now is not supposed to work without a, a lot more problems than we have now. So uh, I'm not an economist. I'm not trying to pretend to be one. It's just that when you listen to kind of like an, an Austrian talk about the problems with the Fed and how this can't be working and we should have crashed a long time ago, it's like, right, they, they just don't operate. It just doesn't work the same way that normal economics should work for me and you. Um, and so I do wonder at some point if you will see a kind of, UN grouping like, hey, you know what, G8, G20, like, you know what, we're gonna cancel the debt. People say I'm crazy, but they keep printing the money and, the, and no one no one cares either. So I, I don't know. Tell me why I'm wrong there. Yeah, it's politically untenable because it just proves that you're you're not a good creditor, right? And like, why would anybody trust you moving well, forward okay, from there? But they locked us in our houses for a long time last year. Man, we're masked. And I mean, uh, so- That's true. Uh, so I, I think, so- Listen, I'm not dying on this hill. I think that the, the the issue that I come to with the with with the debt ultimately is is it should have collapsed a long time ago. I think we both agree there, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it hasn't because they all agree to play the rules. They all they all agree the the, the nations agree to play by rules that we don't agree to, um, or that we're not allowed to. So why can't they just do this rule? And it's like and, and so, um, you know, and so for instance, you know. It's you can't go into someone's house and, and shoot them. But if the U.S. wants to invade somewhere, or if China or whoever wants to invade somewhere, all of a sudden that's not a rule anymore. So the rules at the nation level, people always joke about libertarians. The nations act very much libertarian-esque because <laughs> they agree on these rules. And so, um, yeah, I mean, they ahead. could certainly do that, and they could change the rules. But again, it's gonna be the theme of the episode. We have a free market competition for monetary goods now, and even if they do change those rules. That's the beauty of Bitcoin. Like mm-hmm. that, that changing of that rule is an arbitrary change uh, that was not expected when when the policy was in, originally enacted. Bitcoin can yeah, never right. ever change rules like that, and that is like the stability of Bitcoin's consensus rule set is such that like people are going to pick it in a free market environment over the 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 arbitrary rule changing that is enacted by the Fed and the Treasury in the long run. Uh, yes, I think we I think we we also agree that that would be a more likely outcome. Um, let's talk about institutional money because you've covered this on your newsletter, which we'll link to here as well. Um, to me, institutional money anytime they anytime institutional institutional anything gets involved with something I'm involved with, I get worried. So, tell me why this is a good thing, why this is a bad thing. I can see it going a lot of different ways, um, but you're the expert, so tell me, good is this good or bad? It's good. I mean, that's the the other. 
beauty of Bitcoin. It's an open source system that anybody can decide to opt into, including corporations and large institutions. There's nothing we can do to stop them from adopting a better money and a better monetary network in the form of Bitcoin. And it's good because it validates that Bitcoin has value and is appeasing to that type of individual and corporation. Uh, it actually adds value and utility to the network. These people in these institutions are pushing billions of dollars of liquidity into the Bitcoin network, which gives an individual Bitcoin token more utility for people in Argentina, Venezuela, Belarus, Nigeria that need to use Bitcoin uh, to buy goods. Like they're, raising, they're raising the purchasing power of that, and then the liquidity makes it easier to trans, transact with. Um, and in terms of like, all right, so all these large corporations are coming in, they're pushing in billions of dollars. They're, they're acquiring tens of thousands of Bitcoin at a time. Like they're, they're going to control the Bitcoin network. And that simply isn't true. That's not the way Bitcoin works. Like having more uh, tokens uh, doesn't give you more power. Again, the power uh, lies in the hands of the individuals who download the consensus rule set on their hardware at home and, and, and basically set the rules of the network. Even if you have... 70,000 Bitcoin, like a micro strategy, uh, you cannot change the rules of that consensus rule set by yourself because you have 70,000 Bitcoin. You need each individual running the, the node, the full node software on their computers at home to opt into to a rule set that you put forth. And if the rule set you put forth does things like increase the supply from 21 million to something else, uh, enforce KYC AML regulation on transactions, Individuals simply aren't going to do that. So you can acquire as much Bitcoin as you want, uh, but you're never going to be able to change the rules of Bitcoin. And we've actually already had this, this thesis tested out in 2017. We had a coalition of the largest uh, companies and, and stakeholders and, and venture capitalist backers in the space uh, basically get together and say, hey, uh, we want to change the size of a, of a Bitcoin block arbitrarily from one megabyte to two megabytes. And they tried to force that through. You're talking about Coinbase, BitPay, Grayscale, that runs the GBTC Trust, uh, a bunch of other large miners and players in the space attempt to force this change on the network. And the full, net, full node operators are like, fuck you guys. Like, we're not going to download that rule set. And even with all this, uh, this social and uh, ca uh, capital backing uh, for this, this arbitrary change uh, and it didn't happen because they don't control the network. They, you're talking about companies that that probably hold at least 30% of the Bitcoin on the market tried to make this change arbitrarily um, in 2017, and it, it didn't happen. And that that actually um, gave people like Michael Saylor confidence to invest in Bitcoin because that proves that that full node operators actually control what goes on in Bitcoin, not, not large stakeholders in terms of, of, of number of Bitcoin amassed. Who's been the most surprising um, institutional um, company that you've seen move into the Bitcoin space that has, uh, that you thought, oh, I never thought those guys would be here, but they're here now. Uh, again, like, it, or you, you can't really assume that everyone is going to eventually get there. So yeah, you assume that everybody's going to do it. So like, I assume that everybody's going to adopt Bitcoin. Like, well, okay, people let's that, put it this way. Who has converted sooner than you would have expected? Mass Mutual, one of like the the oldest standing conservative insurance companies in the country. 
dumped a hundred million dollars into Bitcoin. And again, they're a very conservative insurance company. They insure people's assets mm-hmm. and they thought the, the best decision they could make at some point last year was to acquire some Bitcoin to ensure uh, that the value of the, of the assets they insure um, is, is held up. And so like seeing these very conservative uh, old institutions buying into Bitcoin's value prop as a store of value that is likely to appreciate over time is a massive validation of, of what Bitcoin uh, presents in terms of a value prop. I didn't know Mash Mutual had entered the space, so that's kind of that. That is surprising. I mean, I think I saw uh, Chase is getting ready to get in or do something the other day as well. Yeah, they're all hopping on the bandwagon now. Yeah, but but uh, but they were pretty against it for quite some time, right? Yeah, Jimmy Diamond's been a big Bitcoin hater for for years now. But again, we have a better money on the free market. The free market is choosing Bitcoin, and these these haters will bend to its will. Yeah, the problem with like Chase and the big banks getting involved is they're they're connecting to the Fed, and so ultimately, um, I, I know kind of your your ultimate response, but do you think we might see a next few years where the big banks are involved with Bitcoin and then they go and whining to Congress about the volatility of it, they lost money, they're, they're, they lost money, da da da, trying to get it uh, capped because they have, and most Americans don't know this, they have a very very vested interest in the Fed, and so um, they need the Fed to. They need the reserve currency to be the dollar. So do you think that we might see a um, kind of this this faux adoption, if you will, where it looks like the big banks are getting on and then the next thing you know, they're down before Congress saying we, we've got to do something here. Whether, regardless of whether or not it would work, do you think that might be a, um, a path? In yeah, no, I think that's likely. I expect them to throw the book at Bitcoin in terms of regulations and attempts to stop it, but it's all going to be in vain. It's all going to be ineffective. Bitcoin's a globally distributed network. If you... You try to shut it down here. It's basically just going to take Bitcoiners and make them move to to jurisdictions that are more open to Bitcoin. Uh, and if anything, it would be a temporary st- speed bump to destroy the Bitcoin network. They'd have to go and enforce individual node operators around the world at the same time to unplug their full nodes, verifying the rule set, and to unplug their binders, securing the network. It's logistically untenable. Um, or not untenable. It's like logistically impossible. To coordinate to do that um, and at this point and yes i can certainly see them doing this but once you understand bitcoin's game theoretical incentives the incentive is to put the only winning play in bitcoin is is to play like it is to get in and like if you try to curb it with regulations and stop people from from acquiring it and using it again you're going to push that activity to other jurisdictions and you're going to miss out on economic productivity that could have happened uh, within your borders and and the opportunity cost of forcing that activity out of your borders for any amount of time is extremely high, especially during this monetization phase that Bitcoin is going through. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. Um, last year, I looked it up. It was like $7,000 a year ago today, Bitcoin was. Uh, then dropped down to five. And, and obviously, it's been up into the right ever since. Um, you know, you hear kind of these wild projections and I say wild compared to what you'd think of a normal stock, you know, it's going to hit a hundred thousand, get a hundred fifty thousand, four hundred thousand. Um, how do you not necessarily give us a price and if you want to, that's fine, but how do you look at it and go, okay. Um, yeah. Cause you hear people say, well, the market cap of Bitcoin is $400,000. Where does that come from? Cause for the uneducated, it's like, how are you determining this? Um, is there any validity to that? Or should you, are you just kind of like, 
just buy it uh, stack by stack or however you said it earlier. Stack sats. Stack yes, sats. I advise to stack sats. Um, not financial advice, but I advise to stack sats. Entertainment uh, the, only. The, uh, yeah, no, I think Bitcoin's going to be worth millions of dollars in today's today's purchasing power and within the next decade. Uh, and, and the way you come to this valuation is, again, Bitcoin is the scarcest asset we've ever, ever had in the world. It is a digital asset. It's native to the internet. It can be sent around the world. You can send it from New York to Shanghai in a matter of 10 minutes. Uh, it's extremely divisible. Uh, you can keep it in your head in, in the form of a 12-word mnemonic seed phrase, and you can walk around the world with millions of dollars in your head. The utility that the Bitcoin network provides is going to suck value out of other store value assets. So the utility of Bitcoin is a step function improvement of any other store value asset that, that exists out there, including gold, including real estate, including art, including stocks, in, in, including bonds. So think about all that addressable market. How, my, how, my, how many trillions of dollars uh, are people pouring into those assets to be used as a store of value? Bitcoin is easier to access. It's easier to send. It's more divisible. Uh, and it is, has better store value properties. So all those assets, gold, housing, uh, art, are going to be reduced to their industrial purpose. So gold will be used in computers and technology, and people use it as jewelry. It still looks good, uh, but it will not be used as store of value because Bitcoin will be there to exist. Bitcoin exists and will be there, and people will choose it as a store of value. Real estate will be reduced to what it should be, which is a consumption good. People high net worth individuals aren't going to be buying penthouses in New York City and Manhattan to store their wealth anymore. Uh, the political risks that come along with that, the, the ability of eminent domain or something to be seized is, is extremely high. It's much easier to take possession of Bitcoin and just store value in that. Stocks, we see stocks at all time highs. People are, are trying to get away from the inflation of the dollar by speculating in stock markets, hoping that the stocks they invest in will uh, appreciate faster than inflation over the course of their life. You don't need to do that anymore. We have a deflationary currency in the form of Bitcoin. You can store your value in Bitcoin and its purchasing power will increase over time due to the characteristics of its monetary properties. Okay, uh, just real quick, you, you sold me. How much of your Bitcoin are you going to donate to my show? Like, I mean, you're going to split 50-50? I'll go 60-40 with you if, you if you want. I'll let you decide. You, you pick the number there. Um, but it's, so when you look at it, you say, okay, this feels good. Like, um, and you know, I think that's part of the concern is that it, it almost feels like it's one of those things too good to be true. You know, so people are concerned, but where do you think, I, I do think right now, um, uh, so I would say on the Bitcoin scale of, of sold, you have like the zero and then you're like the 10, I'm somewhere between the six and eight range. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a seven, but I, I, I generally think it's it's um, something, especially with all the problems with the dollar. I find it very viable. Um, I'm just not smart enough to know can you replicate or whatever. So someone like you says no, I might take your word for it. I don't. I, don't, I can barely turn this computer on. Um, so okay. So I'm sitting here. I'm going okay. Well, I, I do think right now, especially as you mentioned, around the world in emerging markets, you're seeing this. Where might we see some of these countries to where they um, detach from their local currency and really Bitcoin is kind of the, the local currency. Is there some spots that you might want to, uh, for those who follow, because you hear a lot about Africa, you hear some about Venezuela, um, you've been to some of those countries. Any, any insights on that? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily going to be governments 
mandating like hey we're, no no, no we're yeah, yeah i'm talking about i'm talking about just just because the currency there is you know like yeah. it's a Zimbabwe currency like it's it just sucks everyone's like okay screw this we're going to bitcoin yeah no I, I mean you're already seeing it in venezuela you're seeing it in nigeria you're seeing it in iran you're seeing it um in in belarus for, for particular individuals not in mass but it's happening slowly but surely anywhere where uh in the world where a currency the local currency is shit uh, lebanon's another example turkey's another example people are going to adopt bitcoin naturally as a store of value first because it's better currency but then they'll start transacting in it because people will demand the better money Thier's law comes into play good money drives out the bad money in any any local market um and so yeah it will but it will happen on all sides like so you, you have uh, high net worth individuals in the west who, who want to preserve their wealth over time and they're going to be adopting bitcoin at the same time uh, as a reserve asset and um where you'll see it uh, used predominantly as a medium of exchange first i believe is is yeah like people who work in the in the digital economy and, and work remotely uh, in, in different parts of the world and they will they will use bitcoin to get paid uh, because it's cheaper it's more instant and you can get paid more consistently um, without without having to deal with the headaches of wire transfers western union uh, money wire all that stuff it's going to happen all around the world all at once for different reasons um, but yeah like i think uh, people living in, in countries with bad currencies are are certainly adopting it um, uh, more aggressively than, than maybe your retail investor here in the United States. And there's actually data to prove this. There's a gentleman by the name of Matt Alborg who runs a uh, website called usefultulips.org, usefultulips.org. And um, he, he's basically done uh, some digging and, and put together some data around the, he created an index that basically measures a Bitcoin adoption uh, across the world and, and, and attempting to um, basically pinpoint penetration by taking uh, the, uh, the, let me see what it's called here, the usage per online economic person. Um, so he takes the volume of Bitcoin, the US dollar price equivalent on a day of trade in any particular country, the internet penetration of that given country, the population of that country, and the GDP per capita of that country and, and use the formula to create an index. So um, basically taking into consideration internet access, GDP per capita, amount of people in a country to, to, to highlight penetration. And what you'll find is that the penetration using this index is highest in countries like Venezuela, Colombia, uh, Nigeria, Russia, uh, places that have despotic regimes or, or terrible currencies. Well, you know, it's funny because when you look at, you know, uh, like, uh, you know, there's a, a coup, um, you, the first thing they go for, or like in Iran, um, when they're trying to crack down is they, they try to cut off the internet. You know, that's one of the big things because they don't want the dissident voices getting out there, uh, causing a stir, but also you could see it to be where, you know, they eventually these governments could try to use it to crack down on crypto trading and I don't, I don't know if they can or not, but, but you can see that there's a push to, so we talk about restrictive internet measures, whether it's, uh, Twitter or, or whomever, um, you know, you, there is a concern about how far can this go and what all could they be using this for? Because, uh, you know, folks use the internet for a lot of things, especially in these, these places where they need access to cash. So you or Bitcoin in this case. So you mentioned a minute ago, getting paid easier. Is this because the smart contract, um, you can know, okay. Well, tell me, tell me what you, uh, yeah, it's just final settlements quicker. 
it's, it's like an escrow. I mean, I guess so. I guess what I'm saying is, uh, so if I have a cash app and I said, hey, I completed the job, you could send me, you know, twenty bucks in cash or whatever. So what what would be the advantage of using Bitcoin to get paid um, versus transferring cash to the cash app or is that your? I mean, whatever? cash app isn't available in Venezuela, so if you have a developer in Venezuela, okay, okay, so it's more of just a just okay, it's more of an international type deal. Yeah, so you could actually okay. use the cash app to send Bitcoin right. from cash app to a Venezuelan with the Bitcoin wallet. Um, I got you. I got you. Okay. Yeah. So that's more of a someone in um, Nigeria getting paid by someone in Chile. To exactly. Okay. I yeah. Okay. I got you. Um, what interests you about Bitcoin today? Like, what 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 is it that that gets you? Because you're obviously a guru. You kind of got this whole thing locked down, but you still write the newsletter. Like, why do you keep? What makes you keep studying it? Because from my vantage point, like when I ask you these questions, like this is this is this is O ninety nine. So. What is it that keeps you um, researching and study, studying this? Because on some level, it sounds like the the ball's already in motion and there's not a whole lot new that's going to develop other than the speed in which it tracks. So what, what am I missing? I'm trying to get as much as many people on the lifeboat as possible. I think Bitcoin is our path to freedom in the digital age. Like the way despotic regimes and big tech surveillance controls people predominantly is via the the financial system like in china they have the social credit system if you say something bad on wechat over there you're you're cut off from from accessing certain amount of money or being able to buy certain goods the, the ability to create a surveillance panopticon and weaponizing a financial system in today's world is extremely easy and we need to build technologies that like bitcoin we need to adopt bitcoin and get into many as many hands as possible to prevent this type of financial surveillance being exported to the rest of the world, which is what they want to do. You're hearing about central bank digital currencies that people are trying or openly uh, accepting that with open arms due to the ease of, of being able to airdrop money in people's central bank digital wallets, but they don't realize that they can drop that money in and say, all right, you need to spend it within this amount of time and on these goods. And if you don't do that, you don't get the money. Like the, the ability to minutely control the flow of capital under these centralized financial systems is quite frankly scary. Um, so one, Bitcoin is freedom uh, from this tyranny. And I, I think it's imperative that we adopt it globally uh, for my children, your children, grandchildren, generations to come behind us or it's going to be a pretty, pretty dire situation here on planet Earth. Um, and more than that, like Bitcoin's natural incentives just make things outside that surveillance state extremely better. So what we do at Great American Mining, we're helping make the oil and gas industry extremely more efficient. Like instead of flaring and leaking some methane into the atmosphere upstream, why don't we just show up and we'll, we'll run that gas through EPA certified uh, generators will make sure that combustion is at 99.99%. And guess what? That, that asset that was typically a, a anchor on your balance sheet is now turned into a significant revenue stream. That's going to make you more efficient. It's going to lead to better business decisions uh, down the road. Um, and so they, we're so early uh, in the Bitcoin game and there's so much to be done that I just feel the need to keep writing, to keep doing the podcast, to keep getting out there and mining Bitcoin in places where, where energy is being wasted. So you mentioned the oil and gas stuff. Let's talk about that for a second. Uh, so I'm sitting here uh, in the Barnett Shale, where you would call me geographically speaking, um, predominantly gassy area, not a lot of oil. I don't know how much oil there is, if there's any, just gas, a lot of gas. Um, is, so 
uh, we've talked about from a furring standpoint, is the is it profitable enough to say, you know what, we could drill a Barnett well that's going to be gas and use it to convert for Bitcoin and never sell it to the market? Is 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 a the generators that capable capable, but b um, is it that profitable? It depend. I mean, depending on the BTU content, the BTU content's a bit higher. We just have to derate the gen sets uh, a little bit, but yeah, it's considerably more profitable. So if you go to our website, gam.ai, we have a gas to hash calculator um, that helps visualize the the amount of Bitcoin and and US dollar cash flow if you want to sell your Bitcoin that could be produced from using your natural gas assets to to mine Bitcoin instead of sending it to market at Henry Hub prices. Uh, And the, the, the multiples are considerable. So uh, let's say you have 500 MCFD at 1100 BTU to scuff. Your net back is uh, 50 cents currently with all the marketing that goes into it. It's taken out of out of the molecule and you're using a what's minor M20S mining model. Uh, that's going to net you, uh, again, it's, a, it's $4.4 million of capital outlay up front, but that's going to net you 0.29 Bitcoin uh, per day, which is sixteen thousand three hundred eighty-four dollars right now at current market prices. Uh, so that equates to thirty-two dollars and seventy-seven cents per MCF that you'd be able to sell that gas for. Okay, so how many Bitcoin a day you said it was? Uh, almost 0.3, 0.29. 0.29. Okay, okay, per day. Okay, and so then you just take your will cost and figure out what your recovery. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. And it's a four million dollars setup on the front end. You said. Yeah. Yeah. Four point four. Yeah. So what is the average time it takes for these whales to kind of recoup their cost on that? Uh, at the price of Bitcoin's pumping, it could be as quick as eight months um, in a bear market, as long as 24 months. Mm-hmm. Um, but these containers can run for four to six years. So you're going to get your payback and then you're just going to be printing Bitcoin as soon as you get that payback for, for an extended amount of time. Print, printing Bitcoin. We don't print Bitcoin. It's mine. That's true. Okay. Okay. Minting, minting Bitcoin. Minting. Excuse me. Okay. Sorry. Just... A little technicality as as the as the foe expert here as the fake expert here. I need to keep you on your toes. Um, okay, so one final question, or maybe a little two. Um, I saw Jack Dorsey retweeted one of your podcasts. I think it was a Tales from the Crypt episode. Um, you talk about you know, hey, we're looking to decentralize. Jack Dorsey is I don't I don't know I know he's big in the space, but he seems to be kind of like this contradictory figure. Um, so what's, what's your read on him? Do you, you probably follow him a lot closer than that? Okay. Anyone who follows him follows him closer than I do. So <laughs> what's kind of your read on him? Because I saw that and I was like, Hey, kudos to you. Great job. Like, that's awesome. I don't care who it is. Big name person like that retweeting you. That's legit. But then like, really? Like, I mean, I know he's a big in the big boys, like, but dude, <laughs> so help, help me, help me understand this real quick. Yeah. So, right. It's uh, the dichotomy between what Twitter's done and censoring individuals, particularly conservative voices versus Jack's support of Bitcoin, which is, which is freedom money, free speech money. It can't be censored. Mm-hmm. And there's no Twitter to be able to censor anybody from sending Bitcoin transactions. Uh, I consider Jack a friend. I know him personally. Okay. I've, I didn't know I've that. had him on the podcast. Um, Honestly, like I think I don't think he has as much control over Twitter as, as a lot of individuals seem to think he has. He was thrust out of the company early on uh, in in its life, and he was brought back as CEO after middle management and, and some managerial class was instilled in the company. And I think they have more say on what's going on. Um, if you have to ask me personally, 
Jack's never said this to me or, or anything like that, but I think he sees Bitcoin as a way uh, to redemption for, for the distributed future that, that he thought Twitter would, would begin to enable. If you actually go back and listen to the podcast I recorded with him about two years ago now, he sort of alludes to it in the beginning that, that he wishes Twitter was an open protocol like Bitcoin that, that couldn't be controlled by a company. Um, and I, so I think that he um, is, I don't want to say dismayed, but Twitter is not turned into the product that he originally sought out to build. And that's due to the fact that it got taken over by corporate, by investor interest and stakeholder interest, shareholder interest. Mm. Um, and Bitcoin's distributed nature that he has no control over um, offers a path to, to build that future. And this is just me. Uh, this is what I believe. Again, I've never. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Like yeah. this, this is a comedy sketch routine. Yeah. So no, no that, that, see, I've heard people speculate that. And so that I can, I can definitely see some of the things that I've read about him. Again, I'm not an expert on Jack. Um, I've I kind of see, I can, I can definitely track that vibe, but then also I look at stuff like, oh, how, yeah. how, how, um, and so like, I remember after they kicked Trump off and like a week or two later, you know, he was tweeting out, you know, download the signal app, you know, it's like, wait, hold on. Yeah. See, I see, I, I think those are a little like, right. Right. And so it's like, is he being held? I, I sent that screenshot to someone like, is he being held against his will here? Like what's going on? Cause it's so confusing. So, um, it is not, listen, we all have views that conflict with each other. It's just his, this so prominent voice. It's like, God, what, you know, so anyways, um, no, yeah, and that's I mean that's the beauty of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the currency for enemies. Like you can have hardcore conservatives, hardcore liberals um, use Bitcoin, and neither of them will be able to change Bitcoin. Um, but they'll both be able to leverage the the utility that Bitcoin provides. Yeah, that's one thing that I do like about uh, Bitcoin. You talk about this, and you know the fiat has this as well. But people, as, as a widely open free market libertarian, um, people do devalue the currency of being able to do an exchange in the marketplace and how it brings people together. <laughs> you know? Exactly. No, that, that's, that's one thing I like to focus on too, is, is people like people, most people, the masses, especially here in America, don't realize that the, the state and the media apparatus is using a divide and conquer uh, strategy. Like most people, the, the people storming the Capitol building and the people rioting in Black Lives Matter. I know this is controversial to say, but they actually have more in common than the, the media and political classes trying to pit them against each other. They may not realize it yet. They think the problem is red team versus blue team, but really the problem is money. We fucked up the money. We need to fix the money to enable the type of free trade that you just described. And that will naturally lead to a more peaceful society and more, a more richer society and I don't want to say more equal, but like you'll have, uh, you'll have everybody will have the ability to conserve and uh, increase their purchasing power over time because you're not forced to use a currency that's completely being debased slowly over time, and that is what is driving predominantly the inequality that exists and is causing the social incohesion in the first place. It's the money. It's not red team versus blue team. I mean, we need to stop. But we need to stop falling for divide and conquer narrative being put out there they're using race they're using bigotry they're they're using uh propaganda frankly to to divide everybody and we need to walk away from that framing of our problems and, and pinpoint the core of the problem which is the money we fucked up the money we need to fix it bitcoin fixes the money and we'll be able to get to a much more peaceful society once we get bitcoin adopted widely 
I should have started with that. I didn't know you're so passionate. I could have started there and that was lovely. <laughs> so, but you know, it's funny because um, I know we're, we got about uh, this a few minutes here. Um, so it's funny because if you go back to, there's two, there's two timestamps in history or in, in recent history um, that, that I think are important. One is 2016 election where you would have Bernie supporters who, vo- who voted for Trump. Now, I don't know the percentage, but there was enough that you could find those news, news stories out there. And I remember going, how do you possibly ever go from Bernie to Trump? Now, I didn't vote for either one of them, but I'm just saying like, as I'm like, how do you, but it wasn't even about Bernie's policies or Trump's policy. It was about pushing it back against the establishment apparatus and, and all that stuff. And so it kind of took me a little while after the 2016 election to kind of get my bearings around that. That wasn't really something um, and understanding the frustration of the Midwesterners. Then also Dave Smith has pointed this out. I think it's really interesting is that if you go back to Occupy Wall Street, okay, you have this Occupy Wall Street and at some level, there's, I, I, I sympathize with some, some of the things they were saying, but also I think they kind of missed the federal government aspect of it as well. That's kind of lurking in the background. But, but generally speaking, they were going after the big banks and the big banks are tied to the Fed. And so there's at least some connection there. Um, and then all of a sudden it went from, hey, these big banks, Wall Street, if you follow it long enough, the government, they're screwing you over from your money to social justice issues. And that, that transition has really been star, uh, startling because for a while, Americans were, at least um, a portion of us, were frustrated at this kind of apparatus. And then all of a sudden, he went from there to these more social issues, which are really hard to define, and they're very nuanced. And it's like, okay, well, I, I don't even know. Very confusing. Confusing, it's... right? So even people with good motivations say the wrong thing. People with bad motivations never say the right thing. And you, you don't even know what's talking on. Uh, but but getting screwed over our, our uh, <laughs> for monetary policy it's very complex, but it's also very simple. And it's something that unites a lot of people. So um, I, I found his observation on that to be quite interesting that, that you did see the shift that people were really angry at, at, at Wall Street. And again, I think some of that's misguided because they, they're kind of missing the larger picture, here, but at least they're trending the right direction. And then all of a sudden it's boom, well, these issues that we, we really are vague and it's, I don't even know what to do here. Yeah. I mean, if you just look at the, like the, the amount of times, like words, like, white supremacy racism and stuff like that started started increasing in in the new york times and washington or excuse me wall street journal washington post as well like it's it's a concerted effort to to push the attention of the masses and into like a certain framing of the problems that it pushes it away from the core of the problem which is the central banking system again occupy wall street they were moving in the right direction they were one layer above the actual problem but they, they were start getting closer to the problem. As soon as the, the powers that be figured out that they're getting closer to the problem, they uh, create this whole uh, woke movement to, to distract people and to, to force different conversations away from the core of the problem. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think that um, there's a lot of, uh, there's, there's layers here. And one is that there's a lot of things that, you know, as a libertarian, I would not agree with as far as healthcare and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean that, that there's not a lot of other things that we could we could actually probably come to come to terms with and uh, and ultimately because you get distracted on the social issues and I'm not saying that they are important or not important we miss something core which is if you're paying property tax you never own your property like we miss that or we miss the fact that the currency is being devalued or we miss we miss these other things that 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 like hold on this is generational type issue here that we need to, we need to focus on and this over here uh it, this is gonna take 16 hours just to kind of debate and not saying it's not important or is important that's not even the point it's just that there's other things that, that there's, we just get distracted from. so okay so um we'll wrap up here a by bitcoin b um if i understood you correctly you said to sell your house 
liquidated your assets and go into Bitcoin today. That's that was the that was kind of the gist of what I got today, right? Don't overextend yourself. Bitcoin's still uh, in its monetization phase. It's still very volatile. Only uh, dump into it what you what you can. Uh, I don't want to say can afford to lose. I don't think you're going to lose all your money, but like you have to make sure you have cash flow to to live. So only put into it what uh, right below the point where you have cash flow to live. But yeah, I mean, I'm not saying go sell your house. I'm saying seriously I, consider well, no, diversifying. I mean, I you, every time I heard you speak, you've always been responsible. I'm just giving you a hard time because, um, listen, uh, Dave Ramsey Wood, who, who you've had on your podcast, I believe, um, he was asking this on his podcast and he goes, you know, what would you do different in 2020? And when I went on, I was hoping he'd ask me because it was quite simple. I would have bought all the Bitcoin I could have bought from the time I heard about it when, you know, back when I was, I don't know, God, you know, a decade ago, however long, you know, I'd have bought it all because I'd be retired by now. I would own an island. I would have just, right. if I just lived in a little apartment with my wife and kids and just dumped everything into Bitcoin, I would just be, I don't, I don't know what I'd be, but I'd be significantly wealthier than I am today. Um, and so, uh, so there is kind of that, that looking back. And so, uh, but there has been some ups and downs. So yes, be responsible. So don't sell everything. So most things is what I took away from Marty. Um, second thing is uh, go to tftc.o. We'll link to that. You also have your newsletter, which you can sign up for, which is fantastic. Um, I, I can make about half of what's going on in those daily because I'm, I'm still, I'm not even a Padawan learner. I'm beneath the Padawan learner. So I'm, I'm, that's where I'm at. Uh, but it is, I do think it's a very great educational tool. Um, it's free for everyone, I believe, right? There's no, it's, it's, yeah, it's completely free. free. Um, and so, and then also the great American, uh, GAM.AI, which is pretty cool. I guess pull up here, right, right here. So we'll run this on the text one guys podcast as well. So for folks who want to kind of do this conversion they can go and check it out for themselves we had someone on a while back like you know talking about bitcoin stuff like oh you shouldn't talk about that i'm like listen it's up to the operators to decide like i'm not telling you to do it if you think it's valuable for you then call these folks up look at it i don't i have no idea just give me a chunk of change when you do it that's all i, that's all I ask for uh you gotta and then and then finally if you if you're so inclined you enjoy marty's work Go hit the dime bag up. So <laughs> hit up the dime bag. <laughs> hit up the dime bag. Uh, for the DEA listening, that is not a literal dime bag. So don't come knock on the door. So it's a digital dime bag. It's, a digital it's actually dime worth bag. a dime, not $10. So yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, Marty, anything else before we get you out here today? Just again, I want to really hammer home the fact that most people throughout the world, 99% of people, have more in common with each other than the political media apparatus that is attempting to divide us. They are trying to distract us from the true problems that exist in this world and gaslight us about what what is driving the inequality in our society today. It is the money. We need to focus on fixing the money. Uh, Bitcoin is at $56,000 right now. That may seem expensive. It is extremely cheap if you consider what Bitcoin's potential valuation could be if it is successful. It is successful. It is, uh, in my opinion, hit escape velocity from a valuation and cultural perspective. Don't you don't have to rush in. You certainly can if you want to, but the, the best way to get into it and to have peace of mind as you're getting into it is to what we at Tales from the Crypt call stack sats. So just buy set a certain amount of sats that you buy each day, each week every two weeks, every month, whether it be $50, $100, $10, $1,000, and just consistently get in. Do not try to time the markets. It's very volatile. You're likely going to be unable to time this market. So just stay humble 
and stack sats consistently. Um, that is the best, most avant. It's the best way to get exposure to this asset in the safest way over time. Well, I don't want to brag, but this while we're recording, it is top fifty-seven thousand. That's only me and you listening to this podcast, but I feel like we should take some credit for it. I mean, bullish, bullish. <laughs> okay, all right, listeners, thank you so much, Marty. It was good to get you back on again. I know you're a busy guy, and uh, I don't think we have any more shows uh, this week, so we'll be back next week.